Hello, you're listening to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. It's been ten months by some reckonings and several cycles of the earth by others, but Hussein and I finally donned our frock coats, jumped in the Duesenberg, and headed down to Derry and Tom's to drink bells, eat chocolate digestives, and pick up the final programme with Phase 2. Just like with our shows on Ericos, rereading Jerry Cornelius' stories with a modern head has resulted in a completely fresh take in some ways. Cornelius, probably more than Elric, has stood the test of time and lurked, perhaps surreptitiously, in the margins of the zeitgeist for almost 60 years, most recently appearing once again in Moorcock's novella, Pegging the President. Much like Elric, he's inspired subsequent fiction and characters like Brian Talbot's Luther Arkwright and Grant Morrison's Gideon Stargrave, the latter causing some small commentary from Moorcock himself. Moorcock himself is a big fan of cult film The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. The Booker of the title is an adventurer, neurosurgeon, nuclear physicist and rock musician, which sounds kind of familiar. It's a wonderful, cheesy mess and it carries, if not my highest recommendation, then at least a fairly lofty one. Anyway, this is a fairly long one, so enough preamble. Our table is set, so join Hussein and I as we take a look at the final programme, Phase 2. Uh, we're back in, well, we're in virtual Derry and Tom's today, aren't we? Um, thanks to Lockdown Britain. But I'm in virtual Derry and Tom's with Hussein. Welcome back, Hussein, to uh, Breakfast Through the Ruins. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, and, I think uh, it was actually back. last November, <laughs> or thereabouts, we record, <laughs> recorded first one. Oh. So, ten months down the line, we get to phase two. And uh, I've, I've got to say, we were going to record this a while back, weren't we? Um, but I, th- I think we've already done this a while ago, and yeah. we've just somehow, this is like deja vu in true kind of mock-up, yeah. uh, Jerry Cornelius style. Well, we- We've done this before, but last time I was brown and you were white. <laughs> now that'll make sense to you. And when I was we get a round, yeah, that'll make sense to you when we get round to reading Cure <laughs> Cancer at some point, probably around twenty thirty six. But uh, so yeah, things kind of conspired to get in the way, not least um, the plague, which ravages the land as we speak. Yeah. Uh, of course, uh, Bradford's back in. We, we've been in localised lockdown, I think, since late July, but of course... It's like my Kirklees, well, we're certainly Dewsbury Batley, and yeah. I, and to be honest with you, I think I can't... I don't even know what the rules are anymore. I don't know whether, you know, we're, we're, the, the rule of six applies here or it's completely out. Um, it, it's just in a complete... I think nobody knows anything, and it kind of feels a little bit like uh, a, a, this Jerry Cornish movie when it got, went out kaput. Yeah. Um, I really don't think anyone knows what the heck's going on anymore, so everyone just does whatever they want. I feel slightly more confident because this morning when I was laid in bed, I did a quiz in the Bradford Telegraph and Argus online site, a six-question quiz, um, and I only got one of them wrong. So, oh, 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 was that the, like one of those questions that says, uh, quizzes that tells you um, if you know what your rules, what you're supposed to be doing and yeah. what you're not supposed to be doing? Yeah. And when I asked the, when I answered the question, I thought I think it's that one, but I bet it's now that one. And I was wrong. It was the one I initially thought. I was just I thought I'd take a risk. Uh, but anyway, at least we can do it online. And after some ever so slight 
issues with uh, with our technology were finally figured out and we've got on. So I suppose we'd better do a quick recap of phase one because it was 10 months ago. Yeah. But in a nutshell, so this guy, Jerry Cornelius, conspires with a shadowy group of businessmen and a mysterious programmer called Miss Person. No, no it's Bruna. not Miss Person. I made that mistake last time, didn't I? It's Miss yeah. Bruner. And she has some strange appetites and questionable methods of using her more intimate partners. And anyway, they they, uh, they read the home of his deceased father on the coast of Normandy. And uh, we learn, after Jerry goes there ahead of the main raiding force, that his brother Frank is holding their sister Catherine in a drug state of imprisonment. And we also learn that Jerry's love for his sister is slightly beyond the societal norms. We had a good discussion about that last time round. Yeah. Now, Miss Brunner and this weird group of businessmen, their interest is in some microfilms that are stashed away in Jerry's father's safe. And this is like the big MacGuffin at the moment of, of the final programme. We still don't know what's on these microfilms. Jerry leads a force against the Chateau, which is heavily defended by mute German mercenaries and has their weird psychedelic defences that stupefy, madden and kill most of his force and some of the shady businessmen. But Brunner and Jerry corner Frank and find the safe. Unfortunately, Jerry, in the crossfire, kills his sister Catherine. And to add insult to injury, Frank gets away in all the commotion with the microfilm. And then Jerry is sent to a nursing home, Sunnydale's, to convalesce for a while. And that was the end of phase one. Let's crash into phase two then. And um, phase two, on rereading, largely consists of one pretty long chapter which on rereading it for when we were going to do this a while back, I really enjoyed it. And on rereading it again, because we had to postpone again, I reread it uh, Friday and yesterday. I think this might be actually one of my favourite chapters of, of Michael Mocock across all of his, uh, his oeuvre, just because it's um, you could subtitle this as um, episode 15, the final programme, phase two, or... Just how prescient can one late 60s science fiction novel, psychedelic <laughs> science fiction novel, actually get at you know, the space of one of one uh, strange chapter, which at times is quite anachronistic, but other times it just feels so contemporary? No, it, I mean, it, said, uh, and it is very much, I think, um, just like that. For, for me, I kind of, I suppose, when I'm reading all of this, um, that there are many things that, as I said, it, applies so kind of, they're so relevant to today's um, world that it, it for me, it, I tend to lean on, on it being more kind of relevant as, as relevant today than it or you know, rather than the other side. But anyway, let's let, well, I'm sure we'll touch on a few of these bits and bobs as we go along uh, um, the, the actual chapter itself. Yeah, we will. Um, and I've just realised, despite the fact I thought I'd solved all of the problems <laughs> audacity hasn't been recording but no worries what, what we'll just have to do is we'll suffer with poor quality zoom sound for the first three or four minutes and then i'll drop the audacity uh soundtrack in what a pain in the ass right next time we'll have to do a a three-point check <laughs> is zoom recording check is my mic recording check is your mic recording check Right, let's go. Because I can't hoping, believe I've just done that. Yeah, but I, I'm hoping. My, I've got a, I've got a, a double backup. I've got the um, the Tascam recording, and I've got recording on my computer. Yeah. So I'm hoping that one of them uh, comes comes up trumps if if, if the other one fails. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this is the handy thing, I suppose, about having Zoom is it does provide you with a backup, even if we just end up with a little bit of patchy sound quality. But the good thing about our, um, Audition is you can do quite a lot with the sound anyway, so... Uh-huh. I'm sure we'll be fine anyway. Let's crack on. So I'm, I'm going to kick off. I'm going to read uh, just the first introduction from Chapter 6. Better equipped for the world than, he, than before he'd arrived at the hospital, Jerry offered a grateful hand to the doctors who had served him, gave the rest of the staff a graceful bow, got into his Duesenberg, which had been delivered from town, and drove through the weary streets of London's southernmost suburbs, heading for the important centre, the hot, bubbling core of the city. He parked the car in the Shaftesbury Avenue garage he'd used, and stepping light, sallied out to his natural habitat. It was a world ruled by the gun, the guitar, and the needle, sexier than sex, where the good right hand had become the male's primary sexual organ, which was just as well, considering that the world population had been due to double before the year 2000. This wasn't the world Jerry had always known, but he could only vaguely remember a different one, so similar to this that it was immaterial which was which. The dates checked roughly, that was all he cared about, and the mood was much the same. So straight off the bat there, you've got some points to look at. So there's this idea that the primary sexual organ is now a man's right hand, and you could could read that in a number of ways. Um, You could read that in the way of men losing interest in actual sex in favour of certain things like guitars and music and, and weaponry and... You know, destruction and all these different things, and 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 drug abuse, um, which again, this is written in the sixties, but um, in, in some ways, there's another way you can read that as well. There's a very modern concern that a large proportion of youth are too busy wanking to apply themselves to real life concerns. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite quite a modern thing, especially with like the rise of the internet and online gaming and well, and all these other bits and bobs. And and I think that's see, I had. Japan written down here, and I had no no idea why I'd written it down um, until you just kind of said that, and it was pr- pretty much because of that same kind of issue that we kind of now have in in Japan, where you know the the government is is giving days of, of people to, you know days off so that they can procreate, yeah, and and there's a real concern now that you know. People just are, you know, they're, they're happy to kind of just kind of be in in solitary, you know, uh, making love to their right hand. So to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I saw a, a documentary, a short documentary, a while back. I was watching one of those obscure news channels that you get. It might have been Euro News or Japan Twenty Four or whatever it was, and there was this. Um, it was a really kind of quite sad half hour thing with people being interviewed who in Japan who essentially lived in cubicles and there were these cubicles that they rented out where they had access to a, a, a PC of the internet and these cubicles were you know half the size of this box room that I grandly call my study and they had a, a shower and a toilet down the corridor and people had been living in them for 18 months and just living on the internet and having very little contact. And it was really sad because some of the people who were in there, there were girls who'd had really abusive backgrounds who were hoping that they could find, through this kind of modern internet, I don't know, influencer channel, some kind of new existence, some kind of way of becoming successful or finding a husband. or And that then there were men who had been kicked out by their landlords and had rented this space, thinking they'd be there for a few days and they were still there seven months later, just living on the internet. You know, and it's 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 uh, it's really quite sad. 
But yeah, so, so the, the, the end of this as well, there's also that indication again that whilst this is uh, uh, what in 1965 or 66 when this was published in New Worlds originally would have been almost a dystopian view of London and sexuality and what was going on, now it just feels really familiar. <laughs> it's yeah. automatically familiar. It is. I think it touches on later on in, in, in this chapter, or maybe in the next chapter, I'm not sure. I think it is later on in this chapter. But this, this idea that we're now better off, you know, in terms of our kind of materialistic life, etc. But on our spiritual kind of side, you know, we've kind of a little bit more deficient. Mm. And I think it's 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 that kind of thing again, where whereby you know we've we've sort of reached that sort of point um, in in, our, in t- especially I think in today's uh, world where we, we we if we reflect on ourselves, you know, a lot of people are trying to kind of like constantly. It's that loneliness that they're mm. sort of battling. Mm. Um, you hear it in London all the time, people who are you know in really high flying jobs, but they they. They, they they really are struggling with loneliness mm. and and you know you, you think oh how how is it that today in, in this really connected world we're so lonely mm. like as a, as people how is it that we're so lonely and I think there's there's something within in that as well where kind of like you know when we're talking about this that 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 interest in the opposite gender um, I don't think it's just about kind of uh, people not um, being not not having an interest in in the opposite gender, so to speak. It, it's that kind of pressure of mm. the world, you know, to to kind of not allow you the space to do that. Mm. And before you know it, you know, you've kind of gone through so many years of your life, and you've settled into a pattern, and it becomes more difficult to meet somebody. Mm. And I think it's it kind of touches a little bit around those kind of themes as well for me. So it, it, it's it's. Um, yeah, you make a really good point, actually, because one of the things that really stands out about Jerry Cornelius when you read the final programme, um, and it'll be interesting to get to the further books later on and see how that develops, but he's, he's, um, he's game for anything, but he is spiritually pretty empty. Yeah. And the fact that he is, he, he is spiritually empty, but socially he gets all of his nourishment through social means. Um, and that, that, that shows even more in phase three when he has like a month's-long party at Ladbrook Grove, but we'll get to that at some point. Yeah. But anyway, so after his ordeal, Jerry heads to Emmett's Coin Casino, an enormous converted cinema, all neon and part amusement arcade, part dance hall, thronging with groovy people, old and young. He plays on a simulated laser gun range and gets a little bit maudlin about Catherine. And then there's, there's a paragraph here which, uh, once again, when I read it, is just, well, I'll just read it. Aimlessly, he wandered among the pin tables and fruit machines, bent over by happy young men who worked them excitedly, hand in hand. Jerry sighed and thought that the true aristocracy who would rule the seventies were out in force. The queers and the lesbians and the bisexuals, already half aware of their great destiny, which would be realised when the central ambivalence of sex would be totally recognised and the terms male and female would become all but meaningless. Here they were. As he wandered, he was surrounded by all the possible replacements for sex, one or several of which would become the main driving force for the humanity of circa 2000. Light, colour, music, the pin tables, the pill dispensers, the gun ranges, 
scarcely substitutes for sex anymore, but natural replacements. So, 1965, he wrote that. We, we do kind of exist now in, in that world where transgenderism and the deconstruction of traditional gender roles and identities is happening all the time around us. I mean, it's causing a lot of angst. You know, you only have to look at Twitter and people trying to cancel J.K. Rowling and people like that because they're arguing for a more formal, structured, sticking to this. It's hard to have an opinion on it as as a, a hetero male without kind of getting involved. It's just in 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 upsetting people, but it, it it's happening all around us, and it's it's a really strong theme throughout the book as well. Yeah, we we touched on it, I think, on the last podcast, but is is this this is. You know, it's so spot on. It's so timely, you mm. know. And and that's this is one of the reasons why when I first read this, um, when we first kind of went through the the podcast, I I, I was I was really like surprised by how relevant so many things are in this in this book to today. And ten fifteen years ago, we would not have been we, we would never be able to kind of envisage that there were going to be. This was going to be the direction of travel in this kind of really, you know, so pronounced kind of way that, mm. you know, we, we really are now reaching a point where um, this concept of gender is becoming much more uh, subjective. Mm. You know, it's we, that that's the direction of travel. And, and it's it's almost, you know, because we, this argument of where scientists have to say, well, you know, actually, we for, for scientific purposes, you know, for medical reasons, etc., we need to be able to identify people as how they were born. Mm. And now we're kind of pushing against even that to say, well, actually, now, if I ident- identify myself as whatever I want to identify myself as, I should be able to do that. Yeah. And this, this, this kind of like is, it, it, it points to that, you know, and mm. it's, um, it, it was, it was brilliant. Yeah. Um, it, it's prophetic. You know? Yeah. And, and what's all the more remarkable about it is that it is not predicting the doom of the world on the back yeah. of it, although it is set against kind of like a background of some kind of, hard to define um societal collapse and and catastrophe that's i think at one point it's referred to as a, a pre-entropic crisis yeah um but but in terms of of jerry um is that he's he just views this as the natural future and progressive future of the world um there's there's a paragraph over lethal which, which I'll, I'll, I'll look at in a second but there's no negativity to it. There's no negativity to attach to it. And, and despite the fact that there are constant references to sex and everything else, there's nothing lascivious about it. And actually, Jerry himself, despite the fact that he fancies and flirts with everything that moves, male and female, never actually gets his leg over. <laughs> <laughs> he's, just, he's just constantly kind of existing in this state of, of arousal where he flirts with everything that moves. But he never actually gets there because it's well for i suppose for a variety of reasons but there's something else at the end of that as well where it says um the driving force for humanity of circa 2000 light color music pin tables pill dispensers and gun ranges scarcely substitutes for sex anymore but natural replacements so if we replace i don't know pin tables with Fortnite, or you know okay if this is circa 2000 i don't know what was it then world of warcraft whatever it it really is uh incredibly on the money yeah, and in in some ways, 
it's it's precognizant, but he also muses on the next page about the mass movement of people across Europe. Where is it? The flow had been two-way, of course, with the passengers for 1950 going one way and the passengers for 2000 coming the other. Only France, Switzerland and Sweden, temporal and temporary bastions, hung back and stood, soon to be shaken to pieces in the imminent pre-entropic wash of crisis. It was not a change of mood, Jerry thought, but a change of mind. So he's musing on the mass movement of people and the effect it has um, and the fact that the people who want it to be 1950 again are all moving out of the city and and the people who really constitute the future are moving into these areas and, and creating these these cultural melting pots. It's uh, it's really, really crazy to think that this was written in 65. And actually, on, on the back of that, the next bit also is is along those lines as well because he meets Shades, his acquaintance, an assassin from California. And Shades once told Jerry that he assassinated both Kennedys and he's super proud of it on an achievement level. So he reckons that he assassinated JFK and he assassinated Bobby Kennedy. And this is where things get... We need to do a little bit of investigation because this book was written for the most part in the years immediately following the assassination of John F. Kennedy. So to have this kind of throwaway, casual character bragging about the fact he he killed JFK is pretty risque and provocative to have that so casually thrown in at the time. But even more fascinating is the reference to Kennedy's in plural. Now, the first copyright on the book in the USA is 1968, and it was originally serialised in New Worlds magazine in 65 and 66. Well, Bobby Kennedy was only assassinated in June 1968. (laughs) So either Mocock was super hot off the press, or if this did actually... If the wording was the same in New Worlds, did he predict that other Kennedys would be killed or assassinated well, we don't know, because actually he's revised his, his books many, many times for, for subsequent editions. And I went back and looked at my 1973 Mayflower edition, and the text's the same. But it'd be interesting to know if any of the listeners out there have access to earlier copies, in particular the Avon First Edition US paperback from 68. Drop us a line, because I'd love to know if the text says both Kennedys in the 1968 edition. Because if it does, he's hot off the press introducing an assassin in the same year that Bobby Kennedy was assassinated and saying, yeah, Shades assassinated both of them. And Jerry just hangs around with him and flirts with him and and is just like sort of a, a, a casual mate of his. It's um it's it's pretty on it's it's quite on the nose. <laughs> it's, it's quite on the nose. Um I mean what would a, a modern equivalent of that be i mean we're not kind of in the in the the world anymore of of political assassinations in the west and things like that but if you had like a, an author who was pushing the envelope in things like um, popular fantasy and science fiction and directly referenced or had one of his uh, minor characters in a book who's a friend of the main protagonist actually was the assassin behind killing two, you know, this beloved political figure. He knew how to push buttons. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of uh, the, the, a concept, really, that is, is like that, in some ways, one of these kind of, these flawed kind of heroes in that, you know, it, it's as much as Jerry's, you know, but he's a bit of a knobhead, really. But, <laughs> but, but you kind of still find some rooting for him 
you yeah. know, you find yourself rooting for him in, in a similar kind of way that, you know, um, in the classic texts of Macbeth and all that sort of stuff, you know, you know that Macbeth's a, a flawed guy, you know, he's, he's, he's um, tempted by all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, in that kind of same kind of way, you know, you, you know that, you know, some of the stuff that Jerry does, you, you kind of give him license to, to just get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when yeah. you're reading it, you, 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 you know that he's, like if you met a guy like that in a real world, you 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 just won't you don't pop with it. But yeah, um, with him it's kind of like well, he's just Jerry, I guess. You know? Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 a, a common theme across the Murcock books that his protagonists are generally knobheads, yeah. with a couple of potential exceptions who are less less assholes than the others. But Phil and I have just finished. Um, the Eternal Champion, our third part in The Eternal Champion, which is one of his novels from the late 60s, which, much like the final programme, originated as short stories and then was kind of rewritten and revised and, and released in the late 60s. And the central character of that is an an absolute out-and-out knobhead who is actually, and a mass murderer, who is thinks that he's kind of forced into all this stuff by pre, cosmic predestination determinism and destiny but actually the antagonists the villains of the piece in inverted commas just basically deconstruct him <laughs> and 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 show him just what a mess he is um and that's why murkock was great that's why murkock was great because his, his heroes in inverted commas are his protagonists are sometimes as bad if not worse than the people who in more standard versions of this type of stuff would be quite clear cut so anyway, um, turns out Shades is hanging around with a couple of women, neither of whom get named, but one's Swedish and Jerry takes a shine to her and, and she to him as she touches him up. But once again, he's, he's like you know, Jerry being Jerry, he kind of enjoys being touched up but doesn't take it any further. And they wander around Emmett's and Jerry meets another old acquaintance, an astrologer called Derek, <laughs> who affects to be older than his actual 46 years and is, is upset because his lover Olaf has run off with someone else. And it turns out Derek is uh, used to work for the Foreign Office, but then he, he left the Foreign Office to be an astrologer and has been for 10 years, But even though he says he's been doing it for 60. And uh, later Jerry meets Olaf too and flirts with him, but Olaf wants nothing to do with him because he's Aries, <laughs> which is which, brilliant. Um, you know, I don't know if... I've absolutely no idea um, about anything to do with astrology. I just... That just really amused me. But it's interesting that there's a couple of things in there. The, the, the lass is, I think, uh, she's 16, yeah. if I'm correct. So put, put, put it back to the modern day. Um, I think it's one of the few things that you kind of like look at in the modern in the modern era and say, hmm, yeah. that, that is not something that you'd be able to get away with these days, you know, writing about stuff like that um, yeah. as easily. Yeah. Whereas obviously the, it was... The, there are two points in this chapter, I think, where that comes... Yeah. There are real anachronisms, yeah. which which do stamp it a little bit and and kind of take you back to when it was written. Yeah. So my my other point was about the astrology. Uh, when when we were talking about all, I mean, I said I don't have like a clue about what or, you know when Uranus aligns yeah. with Mars and all that sort of stuff. You know, I don't have a clue about any of that. Yeah. But the other I think theme of this is that it seems to be. That these the way the astrology does seem to play a big part in in being able to determine um, the somehow where, where whereabouts you are in this kind of timeline etc yeah. in in uh, as we travel through time and I think it kind of is touched on with um, Professor Professor Era I think I don't know I can't 
maybe, maybe this is just my mind playing tricks on me. But when I was reading that, I was wondering whether or not there was something in that in that initial kind of chapter where they start talking about time. Um, yeah, because they talk about the cosmic cycles don't yeah. they, of, of the Earth and how uh, the Earth is heading for uh, a, a new cycle, yeah. the commencement of a new cycle. So yeah. said that, that. So even though you know we. Um, Let's say astrology isn't regarded as uh, well in 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 the way that telling of the future, etc., mm. um, isn't regarded as um, a science per se. In, in uh, for certainly not for scientists anyway. Yeah. Um, but in in this book, it's kind of regarded as something quite important to mm. to be able to do that sort of thing, you yeah. know. And 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 there's there's one of the other things whether it was intentional or not. You kind of get the sense that when when they talk about science in this book, it's not regarded as something which is so, something in the in this in, in the realm of absolute truth that you've kind of found out something because Miss Bruno talks about this in that you know I think there's a conversation she has with Jerry and they talk about something um, about the impossibility of something and she says well mm. you know we both know that you know just because it's not it's not uh, it's impossible it can't happen so to speak you know and mm. um and, and i think that that's where this kind of like thing about astrology as much as it's mocked in this book it kind of like almost talks about astrology in a much kind of um much much more in a positive sense that mm. maybe the stars can show us something which we mm. kind of like mock but maybe there is something in that yeah yeah absolutely um and, and- Again, just referring very briefly back to the part three of the Eternal Champion, this 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 idea of cosmology and multiple worlds and multiple time streams and conjunctions uh, and, and movements of celestial bodies or dimensions is is a core part of all of Mocock's fiction, and it's it's it tends to be referred to in slightly different ways. So in in, in this world, we're um, we're in the UK and we're in London and the Earth seems to be plummeting towards some kind of climactic event. Politics and nations and society are facing some kind of collapse, which Jerry can never quite put his finger on because it's almost like things change day by day and the world changes. And and, and there's actually kind of, you know, streams of consciousness from Jerry where he says, well, I can't really remember. As long as the dates match, even mm. if the world doesn't really feel like it does. Like he's got this kind of take or or impression of of different versions of the same world he exists in that's exploited a lot more in the later books but anyway jerry and shades head off to the friendly bum club <laughs> to play <laughs> to play some music but, but but before they do shades is getting a bit exasperated with the machine he's playing on and uh what, what we'll just we, we mentioned a slight anachronism, and we came across this in an episode that I did with Tash on a book called The Jewel in the Skull. Shades is uh, is is weeping, fixed, fixed at this machine, and then it says, "A very cool Negro attendant in a white suit glided into sight. He was smiling. What's the matter, Sonny? This table is fixed. Don't be childish. What else you expect?" Shades appeared to be glowering behind his tired sunglasses. He shrugged rapidly several times. The negro put his head on one side and grinned, waiting. You put the odds pretty high in your favour, snarled Shades. It's what you got to do, man. Any man's got to do something like that these days, you know, eh? This whole damn country's crooked. 
You just discovering that, my friend? Oh dear, oh dear. It's always been crooked, sanctimonious crooks. Oh no, they're pretty straightforward these days. They can afford to be, or thought they could. So just in that little exchange, you've got two things. You've got that one big anachronism, which Michael Moorcock did use quite a few times in his 60s novels, the just the use of the expression Negro. Even in the 60s, I think that was starting to to fall out of acceptability, to, to refer to someone who was black as a Negro, but Moorcock is there using it. He's not being negative or derogatory about the fact that the man is black, but he's using the term Negro, which is jarring, reading it in 2020. Mm. But once again, you've got this crazy and kind of intoxicating blend of anachronism and modern relevance. That use of the word Negro sad makes this feel super contemporary because the reference to the country being crooked, but the most crooked people at the top are just utterly straightforward about it now and lacking any guile. <laughs> and that traditional guile about being such is reflected in that text. No, they're pretty straightforward these days. They can afford to be. Or thought they could, and so here we are in 2020 with with a government who who, who basically just are centralising power more and more and being more and more crooked. You know, we hear about NHS test and trace in the in the press all the time. Really, it's it's just massive, massive multi million pound contracts given without competition. There's no hiding it, nothing whatsoever. It's um, and it's just captured in that couple of sentences. Yeah, yeah, they're crooked, but they're just open about it now because society has got to the point where they don't think they have to use any guile. There, there are there are a lot of things um, along those kind of lines where we kind of now um, reach a point where I think sometimes sometimes people have to kind of reflect on a little bit more kind of thing to see um, the nature of some of these um, points that are made in this book. The ability, you know, this openness of being able to just kind of be so frank about certain things. I think some of the things are much more easy to kind of just kind of relate to today's world. Mm. But things like that, um, where people are kind of talking about um, uh, the, the crookedness um, of people in, the, in a kind of open sort of way. I, I think that in in today's kind of world it, it it can become a little bit confusing in terms of when something is being when when people are being crooked and when people are kind of just being genuinely you know just just trying to do their best so to speak yeah. you know and and i think that it it takes a little bit more kind of reading in, i think i think that where it's it's very easy to see um that kind of stuff is where you get people who are crooked but influ- very influential being able to just bounce back very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just like you can do something very, very wrong and and be able to just come back as if, you know, it didn't even happen. And and I think some of the things that kind of sticks in my head, like things like, for example, you know, the, uh, the likes of Priti Patel doing whatever she did in Israel. Um, yeah. Everyone else kind of like looked on, well, you know, it's just... It's just the way things are, kind of thing. And before long, she's back in cabinet, and yeah. and, and and you get that kind of thing, where it's it's uh, legitimate crookedness, so to speak. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, so well, there's a few of them, isn't there? Um, Liam Fox, he he got caught with his hand in the till, effectively, didn't he? Um, yeah. And and he just comes back because these people are useful to the people in power because they will absolutely do whatever they're asked or directed to do with no hint of shame. Anyway, we're off down a little little political rabbit warren there, aren't we? We are. Yeah. 
But I think so. I think anywhere. There, there Sorry, is in that. I think I think in that it, it, it's, it's, it's I think it's an important kind of thing to be able to to relate to today's world. Though that there there is all of this kind of stuff going on. I think the difficulty with with comparing it to today's world is that we kind of go down this route of a road of sort of you know the Illuminati controlling everything and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. that that's when we start going like that. You know what? We, we we could be just talking about this could be a one of those um, podcasts where yeah. we start talking about conspiracy theories and uh, <laughs> and everyone else switches off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll do that as a separate one. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. No, uh, but it, but it it would be funny just to just to actually look at some of them and discuss them. Um, that's probably but, true yeah. as well. But that is a, a whole a whole other uh, thing to look at. <laughs> So anyway, down at the Friendly Bum Club, Harry hangs out with... Sorry, Jerry hangs out with a, a West Indian musician that he's played with in the past, Uncle Willie Stevens. And, and they, get, they have a conversation. Uncle Willie says that national assistance is getting tougher and they keep threatening to send him back. So, it just continues. So we've now got a West Indian character who the, the government are sending, threatening to send back. But when I was looking into... I thought, what's national assistance? So I thought his national assistance something to do with unemployment benefit or whatever it was. Um, and I looked into national assistance. It turns out that the national assistant program is something that was implemented in the late 40s by a Labour government to um, to provide assistance for people with disabilities and, and, and housing and, and things like that. But while I was looking at it, because I thought it was some, maybe something to do with, with um, support for migrants... I came across something called a West Indian in, West Indian in England, a booklet produced in 1950, written by a West Indian migrant. And there's a really uh, there's a section here which I'm just going to read out called the section called No Colour Bar. And this guy writes, "It's important to realise that while there is a certain amount of colour prejudice in England, there is no legal colour bar." And that what colour prejudice does exist is not as deep-rooted and specific as it is even in the north of America. A West Indian is entitled to demand that he be served in any public place of entertainment just like anyone else, provided, of course, that he is suitably dressed and conducts himself properly. As an illustration of this, you may remember that the famous cricketer Leary Constantine was denied accommodation at a fashionable hotel in London where he'd reserved it beforehand because the manager feared that his American guests might protest. Later, he successfully sued the hotel for breach of contract and recovered damages. A decision such as this and the sympathetic publicity it received in the English press reflects the attitude of liberal and informed public opinion and is supported by the official statements of every political party in England. The government has, however, no direct power or the means of striking at private persons who refuse to board West Indians. Where it can act, it does, as in a recent case where the Minister of Food threatened to withdraw the catering licence of a small restaurant which refused to serve a coloured person who went there with some English friends. I find it absolutely fascinating that that was written in 1950 by a West Indian migrant. And we have this attitude that the past, especially 1950, must have been a horrendously racist and unwelcoming place. And I'm sure, in many areas, it really was. But actually, when you look at what is just mainstream, everyday, really critical hostility that people experience in 2020, 70 years later, that that kind of, um, I found that, that took me aback a little bit. That said, I did notice that it was actually published by the Central Office of Information. <laughs> so, so it might actually be a little bit rose-tinted. Yeah, um, but nevertheless, kind of... Uh, 
and, and the rest of that that booklet as well is really fascinating because it, it talks about um, ration books and, and all sorts of stuff, and it's it's just a really interesting read for for kind of looking at what things were like seventy years ago. Because of course, as you get older, nineteen fifty was only twenty two years before I was born, but because I'm now forty eight, it's seventy years ago, which makes me feel really really fucking old now. Um, but yeah, absolutely fascinating. So having, having this this West Indian character just have an exchange with Jerry and say that um, I think he says something like yeah the national assistant program is getting a bit tougher they keep threatening to send me back and in 2016 or 17 or whatever the government had vans going around saying go home effectively mm. didn't they yeah, um, yeah. The, the, that, amazing the whole quite depressing yeah. yeah it was it's it, uh, I mean when, when you were reading that essentially I was kind of just thinking about that kind of Windrush um, scandal yeah. Uh, and you know, it kind of just brought all of that sort of stuff back to the to to to, to the forefront, really. And um, mm. it, you know, we kind of <laughs> there are parallels with that sort of you know this this um, this idea that you you may be there for a number of years, but you never quite belong. You mm. know that you're kind of constantly just looking over your shoulder for the yeah. day that you know someone changes their mind and you're kind of um, deported mm. and. To, to to some extent, you know, there are many people who feel like that even today. You know, yeah. um, and people, ironically, people who are born here, you yeah. know, feel like that. You know, and and uh, um, which which is quite sad, but um, again, insightful to to uh, uh, to to have that um, mm. within that book. But one of the things that did kind of strike me in the book was that where you do get characters or ethnicity in this book. You don't get a sense of that kind of prejudice that any of these mm. characters tend to have, or, or sorry, uh, any of the characters have against any of these um, mm. uh, people of ethnicity, you know. Yeah. Um, and it, it could have very well slipped in um, through some of the. I know we've talked about the kind of uh, use of the word Negro, but in terms of the attitudes, I'm talking about really. Mm. I, I don't really sense that that there's there's any of that kind of thing. Which, which is in itself is really um, interesting that, uh, and maybe because there's, there was a little bit of that kind of punk type of attitude where, you know, everyone was fair game, uh, equal mm. kind of thing, but as much as everyone was equal, everyone was equal to um, receiving abuse as well, you know. Yeah. It, it, that, that sort of like, you know, level playing field. Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I do definitely think that the, the, the anachronistic use of, of some of the language... It's not like we're reading H.P. Lovecraft here, where H.P. Mm. Lovecraft not only used the anachronistic language of the 20s and 30s, but his work was absolutely drenched in his fear of the other and his terror at the idea of cultural mixing and all that business. So Lovecraft was hugely problematic, and, and Moorcock himself has written about Lovecraft and how problematic he was, but Moorcock's the exact opposite. Moorcock was super progressive. In the first chapter of this book, Jerry Cornelius sleeps. The only time he gets his leg over in the book, I think, he, he sleeps with Professor Hera, the Indian professor. And there's at no point in any of these books, and actually in no point in any of the Jerry Cornelius books, do the protagonists ever use race, sorry, the, the antagonists use race as any form of lever for how evil they're being. Mm. It's, all kind of, it's kind of above that. It's all a little bit more um, transcendent than that. Whereas the Eternal Champion that I mentioned that we've just read, that was basically all about a horrendous, racist, fascist human regime who want to destroy the other. But his take on that was similarly deconstructive. 
and he absolutely deconstructs the trope. So, yeah, you can't knock Mocock for any of this. He's super progressive. So, anyway, later on, Jerry's playing a turn on lead guitar and vocals, playing a Lennon and McCartney number, and he spots Miss Brunner arriving. So they have a drink and a catch-up, and he has a drink with her, and she tells him why he's back in town, why she's back in town. And she says, I advertised for a replacement for Dimitri. Oh, poor Dimitri. Alas, poor Dimitri. I advertised for a replacement for Dimitri. I've got a girl on trial. I've got to meet her later. I've been checking some data on the new Burroughs Welcome. I didn't realise you were the Cornelius who published the unified field theory. You've been digging, Miss Bruner. I have. Overhead, the glass ball revolved and the light struck Miss Bruner's face until it became a flashing assortment of colours. It seemed to offer a clue to a real identity. The total identity that Cornelius had been worrying about since they had talked earlier in Mr. Smiles's house at Blackheath. He now saw her as a prism, and through that prism, Miss Brunner ceased to be a woman at that moment. She was speaking. Weren't you awarded a Nobel Prize for that? A Nobel Prize? Uh, I'm just an amateur. It wasn't fair to take it. It was your chance of immortality. You may never have another. Around them mingled sound, light and flesh. There is a flaw, you know, she said, in quite an early equation. You spotted it. Are you going to shock me? It could mean immortality for me. I think you already have that, Miss Brunner. Kind of you to say. What makes you think it? Jerry wondered if you were in any danger. Not at this stage, he decided. Far better mathematicians than you have checked it and found nothing wrong. You couldn't possibly know. Not unless... Miss Brunner smiled and sipped her scotch. Unless you had direct experience of what I suggest in my theory, Miss Brunner. Unless you know better. So, we now find out... It's been hinted at it before that Jerry is a Nobel Prize winner for physics. <laughs> <laughs> or, a, or whatever it is. So, J- Jerry is uh, a multifaceted character, but, but he's met his match because she's essentially now uh, criticising his Nobel Prize winning work of uh, physics uh, from the perspective of a, a mathematician. And then, and then they go to the chicken fry in Tottenham, Tottenham Court Road. So they, they head off to a chicken shop, which is which is the most London thing of all. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Just have this big conversation about astrophysics, and then they go to the chicken shop. Yeah, absolutely fabulous. Yeah, but it, it sort of so in, in that exchange kind of hints that both know that each other aren't quite hu- human. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it, it's it's that sort of like you know, uh, um, for first sense. It's sprinkled somewhere in the earlier chapter, I think, earlier chapters that there's something different about Miss Bruna. Yeah. But this this is the first time it kind of really starts to kind of solidify that. She's yeah. perhaps a little bit different to... Um, she's, certainly, she's certainly not human. Um, mm. And uh, so, someone who comes from the same sort of um, background as Jerry himself, but without really giving away exactly what she is or what he is in, in that that would kind of exchange yeah. lots and lots of clues just littered around yeah so over chicken miss brunner tells jerry that she's tracked frank to lapland and an old abandoned meteorological station and not only does it have the microfilm but a new MacGuffin, which is mentioned i think for the first time the newman manuscript which is the the last testament of an astronaut a lot of people have heard that newman wrote a book after he came down from that capsule last year and before he committed suicide this is miss brunner speaking I heard that a rep of Newman's widow was looking for Frank. I found the rep, but all he'd tell me was where Frank would be. Jerry says, Newman was rubbed out by security, I thought. Indirect suicide, I suppose. Do you know what was in the book? 
Some say the complete objective truth about the nature of humanity. Some say a lot of crackpot ideas. It must be one of those books. So now we've got this this new MacGuffin. We've got the the microfilm, and we've got the uh, the testament of the astronaut Newman, the Newman manuscript, which Frank also has now, and he's run off to Lapland. But before we progress any further, for them to go to Lapland, Miss Brunner's arranged to meet a new candidate, Jenny, at the wrestling. <laughs> so we get far. This is is absolutely fascinating because Mocock can write. A climactic battle that decides the end of the world in a page and a half. But he spends about four or five pages describing wrestling, butterscotch, and Jerry perving Jenny, who he's taking a shine to. (laughs) (laughs) So Jenny's like a a tall, attractive, educated girl from Bristol. Miss Brunner's new, I don't know, what was Dimitri? Sidekick? Um, I I don't even know, but she's advertised for her, and she's got her. And and they're going to meet her. (laughs) <laughs> at the wrestling. Now, have you ever been to a live wrestling event? No, I've never have. But I, I was thinking about this and I thought, I, I remember watching the wrestling in, yeah. in the 80s on TV. World of Sport? Whatever it was on, you know, the likes of Giant, Giant, Giant Stacks, Stacks. Big Daddy, Big and, Daddy. And, and, yeah. and, and the others. And um, this this kind of, I, I, just, I just wondered whether or not, or just how big wrestling really was during that era. So yeah. this is someone say, well, let, let's 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 head off to the wrestling. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's, it's it's weird, isn't it? Is is this was it actually that popular, or is Moorcock projecting the popularity of wrestling yeah. as as society becomes more loose? Yeah. It's, I, I think only Moorcock could probably answer that question. But I know that in the sixties, wrestling was a big deal. My nana used to take my dad to the wrestling when he was a kid. Oh, and okay. yeah, so I, I can remember watching um, wrestling on the box. And in, back in the eighties, one of the peculiarities about Hull was Hull had cable TV in the nineteen eighties. It's the only town in Britain that had cable TV, and it was all because there was a cable TV company that rented televisions out to people called Ready Fusion. And people of my age from Hull will remember Ready Fusion, and people of my age from Hull will also remember houses with a white box on the wall with a dial that went from A to G, and that's how you change channel. <laughs> Seriously. People think you're mad when you tell them. But no, in the, in the 70s and 80s, people would rent a TV from Ready Fusion. It would be piped through, through a cable connection. So you didn't need a roof aerial. And you would change channel by switching this switch on the wall. And at the time, there were a few channels, cable channels that you got. So, so we had a music channel. We had a, I can't remember if there was a sports channel, but it didn't have it didn't have WWF. It had um, some kind of southern wrestling promotion that had its own TV show, which a lot of them did back in those days. So wrestlers that ended up being in the WWF or the WWE in the eighties actually started off in some of these regional territories. So, so of course I'm watching the US, this. Mainly yeah, US. yeah. So I'm watching this this like American wrestling, and there was. Um, there was a pair of New Zealand wrestlers who were called the Sheep Herders who went on to be the Bushwhackers in WWF. <laughs> so the she- and, and they would have these wrestling matches and I would be sitting there in the summer watching this wrestling programme from America on this cable channel through Ready Fusion. And they would be using weapons, they would be hitting each other with chairs, barbed wire wrapped bats and all this. So this was mind-blowing to me because I'd only ever seen World of Sport. You know, the, the, the most 
extreme thing he got on World of Sport was if Les Kellett lost his rag and beat up some poor jobber. <laughs> and even then, you didn't really notice it happening. So it was really mind-blowing to me. But I can remember my dad telling me, he said, oh, this, this, this isn't unusual. My mum used to take me to the wrestling in the 50s, and they, they were all doing it. <laughs> they were bleeding, they were blading, they were doing all these things. And and my nana was actually Pops who, who started me down this route of reading all these books. It was it was his missus. She was absolutely you remember on World of Sport you'd get the old ladies who would sit at the side and, and try and attack the um the villain wrestlers with their handbags. That was what my nana was doing <laughs> in the 1950s. So, yeah, wrestling was big. Whether it was big to this degree, because the way this is described, it's very, very heightened, but wrestling's kind of a, a an interesting thing a few years ago me and my mate rich firth we um we found out that there was a wrestling promotion in wakefield called uk wrestling so one day we thought oh we're going to have to check this out just out of curiosity we've got to go and check this out so this they were putting on an event called ukw wrestlebration <laughs> so you know you get wrestlemania yeah. their version was wrestlebration and it was a three-day thing so on the um saturday we went and watched wrestling in this warehouse in um in wakefield there was about 70 80 people there you know families and you even, even with that few people you get this strange kind of febrile atmosphere where suspension of disbelief is just the rule at play and you just you just kind of get into it and, and just enjoy it for what it is. But as part of this three-day wrestlebration thing, the Friday night was in Featherstone Library. <laughs> right. so, so Friday tea time, we got a train to Featherstone, and I've only ever been to Featherstone for the rugby. In, back in the day, we used to go to, um, mm. what was it called? Uh, oh, Post Office Road, I think, in Featherstone. So we went to Featherstone Library, and it was this little municipal library that looked like it was built in the 60s, like Red Brick Library. And we, when we handed our, our our tickets over that we printed ourselves and went in... Was it still operating as a library as well? Yeah, but they just seemed to have some kind of function space. Oh, OK. Um, <laughs> so, so you had a wrestling ring that was only about maybe half to two-thirds the size of a, of a wrestling ring that you'd normally see. And then there was loads of benches on the right kind of going up. And there was about eight people in there. <laughs> so we went and sat down, and as we were waiting... There ended up being maybe 16, 17 people. And these wrestlers came out and started doing matches. And they were really going for it. And there were there was us. There were some lasses on the right who were obviously wrestlers' girlfriends. And there were some guys down the front who just seemed far too enthusiastic about all this wrestling business. Well, it turned out the reason why is because halfway through, these guys down the front turned out to be invading wrestlers from Grimsby Wrestling Alliance. <laughs> and they got in the ring, and this big war erupted between these wrestlers. And we twigged that, actually, when you when you discounted the Grimsby wrestlers and you discounted the wrestlers' girlfriends, there was me and Ferthy and three other lads <laughs> who paid to be there. But these guys just gave it everything. It didn't matter that there was only seven people there or five people there, five paying people, whatever it was. They gave it absolutely everything. And then the following day in that warehouse on the Saturday, they invaded again. So it was like this big storyline that, that UK wrestling in Wakefield had been invaded and they were having a war with Grimsby Wrestling Alliance. <laughs> it, was, it was just... It was one of the weirdest, most surreal, um, but kind of basely entertaining things I've, I've ever gone along to see and it, co- it costs like 12 quid for both days you know so I, I get to say that I watched wrestling in Featherstone Library and it was invaded by Grimsby Wrestling Alliance <laughs> the villains 
Absolutely amazing. So, yeah, but of course, Mocock's wrestling description heightens everything. And as this is London succumbing to societal and temporal collapse, loads of people are openly masturbating. Yeah. That, that, was, that was the most... Bo- so you got kids watching this. <laughs> and then you've got all the sounds of people just kind of, you know, masturbating <laughs> as well. And it was... It, it was yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it, it goes on for pages. And he describes the wrestlers and whether Jerry fancies them or not. Yeah. <laughs> he fancies a couple of the lady wrestlers because they've got long legs, but he doesn't fancy any of the male wrestlers. I think there's one called Gorilla George and... Oh, God. But it's, it's it, brilliant. It, 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 it did make me wonder, though, when, when, I, when, when I heard... When, when he mentions the, the, the women wrestlers, I, I, I don't recall watching any women wrestling on, um, on, on TV, or at least it... Doesn't register in my memory. Maybe there were some. No, but, I, I don't um, remember being, being on World Spot. So no. it, it was again. You know, it was something that if they were around, I know with the whole WWF and WWE yeah. or whatever it is now. You know, they've you've especially in the last decade yeah. or so. You know, the women have come much more into prominence. Yeah. But to to have women wrestling around in this in this ring, you know, maybe even that was a kind of foresight into what what. The you know way we would end up on because um, yeah yeah I mean there the were female wrestlers I just don't think they made it onto TV with the exception possibly uh, I'm going to show myself to be something of a wrestling nerd perhaps and this is only really because I read a book years ago called The Wrestling by Simon Garfield who I think was either an Observer or Guardian journalist who was obsessed with wrestling and he wrote this fantastic book called um, The Wrestling where he he tracked down all of these wrestlers and interviewed them. And and the most successful British female wrestler was called Klondike Kate, and she actually made quite a lot of money, as as you know, in terms of the money that, that uh, wrestlers made in those days. So there definitely was female wrestling, and she was on the scene for a long time. But the best thing about that book, and if you can find a copy, get hold of a copy. It's published by Faber and Faber, and his big thing that goes all the way through is um, that he wants to try and track down this wrestler Les Kellett, who was his favourite wrestler as a kid. And Les Kelly had like um, you remember you remember when you get those pictures of like Yorkshireman Gurning, um, he had that kind of look to him, and he was a Yorkshireman, and he he had a reputation. He was good in ring, but he had a reputation of as being a legendary hard man. So not just a a wrestler, but actually a genuine hard case. And he interviews people about Les Kellett as he goes along, and he, and he he hears these anecdotes about what Les Kellett was like, and the one that sticks with him the most. This guy goes backstage to try and get autographs from the wrestlers, and he asks Les Kellett for an for an autograph, but he he says if you can write that is. So Les Kellett texts this guy and presses his face against a two bar electric fire in the dressing room. <laughs> it was it was an absolute animal, and eventually I won't spoil, but eventually he does track Les Kellett down Jeez. towards the end of the book, and yeah, my God, he he had this he had this kind of comedy gimmick but in real life he was a real hard case with real rough upbringing uh, but anyway we've kind of we've gone off on a, a number of tangents and gone yeah. down a few rabbit holes and now we're in a wrestling rabbit hole <laughs> but yeah but there's, I, did, I did i think i took a screenshot of my kindle with that when we were talking because when we were talking about the whole um you know people just masturbating and stuff but one of the things that comes in that conf- again in that kind of exchange uh, and i'll read out uh, my screenshot i've got here yeah. um this is, here and there, people were masturbating. Quite like the old Roman arena, isn't it? Said Miss Bruno with a grin. I sometimes think that masturbation is the only sincere form of sexual expression. 
And, <laughs> and again, it kind of comes back to this theme again that, well, you know, that, that, that people kind of would express themselves as like their, their truest form rather yeah. than kind of with other people. You know, that, that kind of notion that relationships as we had them are, are no longer as important, so to speak. You know, the relationship yeah. with yourself is more important. That's right, yeah. And, you go to the gun range or you go to the wrestling and have a wank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah but it does, it, does, it does make me wonder, when, again, the, ref, the reference to the Roman arena, etc. you know, I wonder whether Moorcock was talking about something along the lines of history repeating itself in in a way that is that under you know in, in sort of you know Greek mythology and uh, um, uh, when sort of Greek mythology uh, you know when uh, you're talking about the the likes of those uh, Greek aristocracy this notion I think that they supposedly had that they they, they mentored you know boys and. Or, you know, and and they would sleep with them, but it wasn't yeah. regarded as like a a sexual relationship in the in the in the way that we would kind of it would just be it was just something that was a matter of fact that people just yeah. did, you know, and and I'm wondering whether that that sort of this this kind of this this world that he's kind of recreated is more kind of like a different version of a time that did happen previously, mm. in a different sort of way, you know, yeah, um, and and. Yeah, well, well, again, it's this theme of 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 multi the multiverse theme and and time being cyclic. And I think we discussed when we talked about Phase One that Phase One really is a retread of one of his earliest fantasy stories, The Dreaming City, mm. about his Elric character. So in in that book, Elric goes back to his hometown because his cousin has imprisoned his sister, i.e., Elric's cousin, who he's in love with, and she's drugged up in a stupor and he accidentally kills her when he's trying to free her and then his, his city gets sacked by yeah. human reavers but the thing about that 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 race that Melanobonian race this ancient race who pre who predated human existence is that they are morally and culturally how we would describe as depraved so um, they keep slaves. They keep the slaves drugged up. They, if they're bored, they will torture and kill the slaves in all sorts of horrendous manners. They, there's there's one um, description where um, his his cousin puts on a ball, and one of the things that they have is a human choir. All have been operated on with the throats open to sing to scream at a specific pitch. So there's a common theme in Moorcock that these worlds are always doomed to destruction and. Mocock's protagonists kind of exist among it, and the degree to which they fight against entropy, or, or it's called entropy in the Jerry Cornelius novels. It's called chaos in the fantasy novels. Later on, the, the concept of law and chaos being as as mm-hmm. as evil as each other in given circumstances emerges as well. And um, so, yeah, it's a very strong theme that's kind of shot through all of his fiction. And it's but in, in this, it's kind of given this um, contemporary makeover. Yeah, which which works brilliantly with with scientific expression. We'll talk about this later, but it's, it's like, is this science fiction? <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll 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 have a think about that one. I've told you how I feel about end. science fiction. No. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but, um, yeah. So anyway, there's there's an intermission where a folk band play songs about outer work miners. <laughs> so, <laughs> so at this point, Miss Brunner decides it's time to go back to her place, and and Jerry drives them there in the Dusenberg a flat in Holland Park, which is not far from Jerry's place on Ladbroke Grove. So reading this, 
today, you'd think, oh, Ladbroke Grove, very swish. Because Ladbroke Grove now, of course, is gentrified and expensive, even by London standards. But in the 60s, it was really, really run down. Uh, Grand Victorian townhouses turned into flats that were barely better than slum dwellings, um, tons of poverty, really, really kind of rough areas. And this is where, again, this is where Jerry finds that he wants to be amongst the action, so to speak. And actually, have you ever seen a film called Performance? No, not, don't call that, no. It's, yes, it's not, a, it's not a Michael Moorcock film, but if you ever want to watch a film which gets somewhere close to having a feel of a Jerry Cornelius novel. It's performance, um, and it starred... Uh, it was by a guy called Nicholas Rogue, uh, a really interesting director, and it stars... It was James Fox, the youngest of the Fox brothers, as this gangster who ends up going into hiding in the house of a very jock, Jerry Cornelius-esque kind of character played by Mick Jagger, who's like a, a drugged-up <laughs> pop star who just kind of exists in this place with his girlfriend and this little boy who dresses like a girl who's basically their housekeeper. And so James Fox goes in and is a complete, brutal gangland bad guy. And he goes in and get, kind of gets pulled into this free love, drugs kind of situation with, with this Mick Jagger character. And it's all set in, Ladbro- in Ladbroke Grove, and the house is in Ladbroke Grove. And I, and I reckon I'd be very surprised if the people who wrote performance hadn't read the final program. I mean, I could be wrong, um, but it's a, it's actually, it's it's probably a better Jerry Cornelius film than the one Jerry Cornelius film that was made of the final program, which I'll have to post you at some point so you can watch that and we'll talk about it sometime <laughs> further down the line. Uh, but yeah, well worth checking out. Performance, it's brilliant, and it's absolutely got a fucking fantastic soundtrack as well. Really, really good. But anyway, so he's he's in they're in Miss Brunner's house and whilst Jerry's deciding that he's he's gonna try and take Jenny off Miss Brunner because he's got a bit of a huff because Miss Brunner's got this Jenny larker. Uh, Miss Brunner goes off to bed with Jenny and um but you don't get a chance because the next morning he, he finds out she's gone. Downstairs he heard a noise in the living room and went in. Miss Brunner, dressed as she'd been the previous night, was lying on the couch with her arms flung back and her legs a sprawl. Jerry grinned. The noise he had heard was her breathing, deep and ecstatic. At first, he guessed that she was drugged, but there wasn't any evidence around. Then he saw a neatly folded, deep pink dress, a red-edged leather jacket and a pair of black tights and pumps. Jenny's clothes. Where was Jenny? He looked down at Miss Brunner's face and felt funny. He felt even funnier when the eyes popped open and she stared up at him with a quick but dreamy smile. What's the time? Time for you to change while I make the coffee. What happened to Jenny? She won't be coming with us, or maybe... She swung herself into a sitting position, straightening her skirt. It doesn't matter. Okay, you make coffee. Then we'll be off. Jerry looked at Jenny's clothes and frowned. Then he looked at Miss Brunner and frowned again. Don't worry, Mr Cornelius. I've got a feeling I ought to. Just a feeling. Ignore it. I've got a feeling I ought to do that too. He went out of the room and found the kitchen. He filled the kettle let it boil, put coffee into the filter, added the water, and put the pot on the stove. He heard Miss Brunner go upstairs. He sat down on a stool, not so much puzzling over Jenny's disappearance as trying not to. He sighed, feeling cold and rough. So poor Jenny lasted even less time than Dimitri. <laughs> but once again, we've got this uh, this mysterious, unmentioned thing that Miss Brunner does when she disposes of people. 
which is kind of difficult to define, but also it's the movie does a lot of things wrong, but it does some things really, really well. And um, the Miss Brunner thing, actually, the, the actor, the cast as Miss Brunner is excellent. And, and the, the way she disposes of Jenny is actually quite faithful in the book, and it's quite interesting, quite psychedelic. In the sorry, in the movie, yeah, it's well worth a look. Yeah, I kind of I, I had a sense that he was or she was using, I suppose, almost like swallowing them in, in some sort of way and um, using their energy. Mm. You know, I think there's, yeah. there's something that comes up in in the next chapter or previous chapter that kind yeah. of alludes to that sort of um, yeah. uh, way of kind of energizing yourself, and it, it's. I don't know whether Jerry has that same ability, but refuses to do so. Um, mm. Yeah, it, it, that, that, I think that that's kind of like something that kind of picked up on. Yeah, it's like Jerry's like a social vampire. Yeah, he seems he seems to to feed off flirting, socialising. He feeds off the the kind of atmosphere of having people engaged in things around him. Whereas Miss Brunner seems to be more like a more more of a literal sexual vampire almost in that she actually literally absorbs people yeah. in order to um, re-energize herself yeah so anyway we head on to chapter seven and uh, jerry and miss brunner head, head for lapland it turns out jerry's got a helicopter and fuel stashes all over europe for occasions such as this because of course being a some kind of weird psychedelic nobel prize winning astrophysicist super spy of course you do so he's got a plane as well which is quite swish so they they fly across Europe drinking Bell's whiskey, which oh dear oh dear, I do like whiskey, but Bell's is the worst. I think we discussed this in the first yeah, episode. Yeah, um, but they land in Lapland and they find this weather station where they come across a Scandinavian Lutheran minister called Marek. And Marek informs them that the previous occupant has moved on, but he left all sorts of scribblings, symbols, weirdness, wounds, mazes, and Miss Brunner thinks it's all a clue to where he's gone. Marek, however, he's he's a little bit perturbed um, by Brunner and Jerry, and is a little bit weirded out by them. Jerry says, I told you, we're searching for my brother. Marek says, there's much more than that. I'm not an intellectual, but I have an instinct that is generally quite astute. There is at once something less and something more in both you and your companion. Something I am not normally guilty of coming to such a stern assumption, but something evil. There's good and bad in all of us, Hermaric. I see your face and your eyes. Your eyes look boldly at much that I would fear to look at, but also they seem to hide from things that do not frighten me. Could it be that we are ahead of you, Hermaric? Ahead? In what way? In time, Jerry felt unusually angry with the pastor. These old-fashioned rules no longer apply. Your sort of morality, your sort of thinking, your sort of behaviour, it was powerful in its day, like the dinosaur... Like the dinosaur, it cannot survive in this world. You put values on everything. Values. So, again, Jerry's kind of rejecting spiritualism. And you've got this guy, this pastor, who's uh, really unsettled by them and senses that there's something deeply wrong about them. But Jerry just kind of gets a little bit impatient with him. And, yeah, it's that re- rejection of spirituality in favour of um, kind of technology and progress. Because at one point, Marek says, what's going on in Europe? I've, had, I've read that inflation exists in almost everywhere. Your crimes of violence have risen steeply as of mental disorders and vice. Mm-hmm. 
And Jerry's answer is, well, IBM's just perfected a new predictor computer using British, Swedish and Italian scientists. All kinds of books and papers are being published full of new observations and he just goes on and on and on. Transport and communications are better than ever they were. And he just he, do, he doesn't understand the question. Yeah. It, it's, it's a very poignant moment, actually. You know, when I was reading that, um, again, uh, we talk about this uh, as very, you know, the relevance of today. We, we have a society now where um, I think there's, you know, books published on this. Um, I think uh, the Spirit Level, uh, one of the more kind of popular kind of publications of recent times, kind of touches on this type of theme that, you know, we, we, we've kind of reached a point where we've got all of this technology. And when, when he's talking about IBF, IBM has just perfected a new uh, predictor computer, start thinking about AI and all that sort of stuff that's now currently happening, all of those things, you know, where we're, we're in this realm of... Uh, we, we feel that technology is going to be able to do everything that we once did and, and life is going to be much better and, and etc. But if anything, it kind of like increases the divide between those who are wealthy and those who aren't and those who are wealthy and not necessarily happy either. But it, it's, a, it's, it, it's that kind of exchange there where you kind of sense that some, someone who's kind of uh, um, maybe Jerry isn't that kind of that human who, who's mm. got that sense of morality in him. And that's one of the reasons why he doesn't quite understand where the past is coming from in, mm. in his questioning. Yeah, he just don't get it, does he? It isn't. And, and it touches on this kind of subject of morality, you know, subjective versus objective. For Marek, it's, it's much kind of leans more towards kind of like um, sort of objective kind of, you know, side of things, that things are either right or wrong kind of thing, you know, whereas... Jerry doesn't seem that kind of person to kind of entertain that question. He, it, you know, there mm. doesn't seem to be this kind of concept of right or wrong. You know, it's, it's just is, you know. So they head now for where they think Frank has gone. And it turns out that he's uh, gone down into an underground network, which turns out to be an old Nazi base which has become kind of a, a a lovely, fairly regular trope in a lot of uh, kind of science fiction and, and, and other bits of pieces. Like, well, Red of the Lost Ark, you know, stuff like that. It's like Nazi bases. You've got to have Nazi bases. It's always good. You can identify with Nazis. They're always evil. But it, it kind of taps into some of this stuff about um, some of the kind of weirder, more esoteric things that the, the Nazis were up to, especially people like Himmler. Not so much Hitler, but Himmler was very into the idea of um, hollow earth theory and, and all these other bits and pieces. So they find that they've, they've got this incredibly well-engineered, naturally, underground Nazi base where Frank has been hanging out and there are hot springs and all sorts of other bits and pieces. And there's there's a, a, a really, again, like a nice interesting thing about Jerry where she says that there's some German on the wall or something and Jerry says, I can't always read German. It's like, right, another nice little clue that there's Jerry just isn't normal yeah. at all. That Jerry is like probably a multiplicity of people. And when he says that, if you read this cold without reading any of the Murcock stuff, it's it's kind of it's interesting and fascinating. But when you when you kind of factor it into all of the other stuff, it's it's just part of this broader mythos of all these characters who are essentially versions of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that's there's just those little hints with Jerry. Or it could be that there are just multiple versions of Jerry and he never really can keep quite track of which one he is 
are where he is because he's this weird kind of fractured personality who almost seems to exist on instinct. Yeah. And as and as as long as he gets to eat some chocolate digestives, drink some Bell's whiskey, get his revenge on Frank, these these are the things that kind of drive him at this specific point. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a moment where he's uh, walking through the, the 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 caves and he's he ends up kind of almost hallucinating and 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 start to feel a little bit delirious. It's I think, and it kind of points towards the thing that you were talking about there that. Not sure whether he is the person he says or who he feels. I'm not sure he connects with himself all the time. And and this this German thing, you know, was interesting about how you know Frank's had German soldiers round his base um, guarding his property, and 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 somehow I don't know whether this is like the, this kind of uh, this this some this this view of. Hitler's <laughs> renaissance, you know, in the in the, in this kind of light thing about well, you know, uh, the, these guys somehow these evil guys ended up with siding with Frank, and mm. and then this this war again uh, between reliving that kind of war <laughs> of yeah. Nazi Germany and yeah. everyone else. It automatically identifies Frank as the villain. Yeah. You know, in a sixties novel, he, he has he has German mercenaries as his guards. He hangs out in deserted Nazi bases where they were trying to find the Hollow Earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sadly for Frank, the the catch up with him, and he, he meets his untimely demise as he tries to get away from them. And Jerry, on this occasion, manages to get his shot in the right place. But there's a really brilliant exchange, and this is actually one of the best things in the film for me. Is the guy who plays Frank is brilliant as well. And the little exchange that they have as they're shooting at each other is actually pretty close in the film, even though in the film it takes place somewhere in Spain. Even though the underground Nazi base is in the film, they've killed Frank before they get there, which I don't know why they did that. But you got this great exchange. Frank yelled from the roof, come out, Jerry, or I'll shoot your friends. Shoot them then, Jerry says. <laughs> yeah. Please come out, Jerry. I've been thinking what to do. I'm going to stitch your balls to your thighs. How about it? Who told you I had any? Please come out, Jerry. You're a sadist, Frank. I just realised it. One of many pleasures. Please come out, Jerry. What are you looking for here? Steamy uterine seas? Warm caves? Revealing Frank? You're so common. I am indeed. And uh, unfortunately, it's a shame. I like Frank as a character and he probably gets... Because he's visualised and the actor who plays him is really good in the film, you get a little bit more out of Frank in the film, strangely, than you do in the book. But sadly, Frank goes down and he reveals before he dies that he found this place because it was on the microfilms. And he's got the manuscript, the Newman manuscript. And finally, they take him down and they get their hands on the microfilm. And Miss Brunner takes that, puts it in a pocket, and she hands him the briefcase. And it says, there was a thick cardboard file containing a typescript. In Frank's handwriting were the words, The Testament of S. Newman, Colonel, United States Air Force, Astronaut. Jerry flicked off the rubber bands holding the manuscript together. He sat down on the damp rock and opened the file and began to read. And I won't read this, but then it's just a page of ha 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 ha. Jerry sighed and tossed the book into the water. 
<laughs> so the last testament of the of, of the first man in space or whatever it is is just two hundred and three pages of handwritten ha 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 ha, which I must say when I read it. Um, I, I, I was like, whoa, man. <laughs> that's, it's, it still is pretty amusing to this day. It, it's, it's, I mean, that, that point is, 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 is stuck in my head, especially that exchange in Spectra. And I expected, given given the first kind of exchange that they have at Frank's house and this kind of almost immor- immortality of Frank, when, when he falls into the water, I'm, I'm fully expecting him to come back out again. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like... What is 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 gone? He's actually gone, you know. And uh, I, yeah. I, I was, I was really surprised how quickly it, it just kind of like cuts him off. I was like, yep, he's done with. Well, the, the, the other thing that also struck me was when I was thinking about the this this manuscript. Given the fact that you're kind of wanting it so badly for so long, and and how he just tosses tosses it into in, into the the, the the water. I'm thinking, you know, if that if that was me, I'd have probably still kept it. And wondered yeah. whether there was something within <laughs> some kind of card. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of the pages was well, you know, just I would have gone through every single page, and maybe within them, there would have been something in that, you know. But he just seems to yeah. casually just kind of skim through it and say, "Ah, so this, there's nothing yeah. in here." Yeah, it's, it's like he's he's quite willing to accept that revolving around the Earth and seeing kind of like the greater um, picture of of the world and our small part in it and our small part in the cosmos was enough to drive an astronaut to basically insanity and suicide and he's like oh that's disappointing and just throws yeah. it away yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i read this for the second time in about 1992 or three and uh, me and Lars were in prague with robber who's now a patron hello robber remember our holiday in prague and uh, and our mate john and because I was, you know, you do these things when you're 20, 21, don't you? And you're too into various things. I, I wrote a postcard to uh, a couple of people, but one of them was a girl kind of not quite going out with, but potentially there was potential for that. And I wrote her a, a, a large Prague postcard and just in the tiniest, smallest writing I could possibly get, I just wrote ha, 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 ha and filled up the entire postcard with it. Just, <laughs> just left enough room for a regress. Um, I thought I was really clever. She, I, she didn't really get it. I don't, you do these things, yeah. Well, I don't. I don't see why she would have done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and, and that's the end of phase two. So, discussion points: Is this stuff prescient, or are we just projecting on it? I don't know. I, I don't. I, it's really difficult to. Um, well, we can ask Moorcock. There, there must have been a vision. There must have been a yeah. vision of what, what, where the direction of travel was going, and and maybe maybe there was it, it was an exaggerated vision. I think he, it'd be interesting to know whether or not even he is surprised by where we are today and, and mm. what he was thinking. But because you know maybe maybe back then if he the people who were reading it <laughs> might have been thinking what the heck is this stuff you know all about um, this this is really out there, but we we. we we really don't have that sort of sense of you know uh, shock in, mm. in 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 what when we read this. So yeah. it, I would I'd be really interested to see anyone who's read it from that when the first kind of versions came, first editions came out of this, uh, their yeah. thoughts on that. I mean, we we do have some listeners who, who are um, older than me um, who will have read this long before I did. So it'd be interesting to, to, to get some feedback from the listeners. But the, the, the other, um, great thing about Jerry Cornelius as a character 
is at one point he can Mocock kind of made him an open character, so other so other authors could write stories, Jerry Cornelius stories, and there were a new the New Worlds magazine that he was the editor of, and some of those well most of those have been collected in in um, collected short story editions. It's one called um, the New Nature of the Catastrophe. They've been called various things as as they've. Um, as they've gone along, and his own short stories have been collected on a couple of occasions. So there are multiple volumes of Jerry Cornelius short stories. There's the Four Core Novels, which culminated with the condition of Muzak in the 70s, and then there are just a multitude of short stories, not only by Mocock but by other authors, including people like Brian Aldiss as well, and M. John Harrison, who were kind of like big names in, in science fiction at the time. But and not only has he continued to write these short stories, but actually he wrote one only a couple of years ago called Pegging the President, which is... He wrote one called Fire in the Cathedral as kind of like a loose... Not a response to 9-11, but with 9-11 certainly featuring as some element of backdrop to it. And he did another one called Pegging the President after Trump got elected. So it's still out there. Turns 81 in a couple of months, and he's still out there, and he's still knocking out Jerry Cornelius' stories in, re- in response to what's going on <laughs> around the world. you got to love him. I mean, I personally think it is, it is prescient, but I think it's, it's more to do with... No, nobody ever sets out to project the future unless you're Arthur C. Clarke. But it, it, in terms of kind of projecting what society might look like um, in a book from 50 years ago, the more you read it, and the more often I read it, and the more time goes by the more prescient it seems to become, even though there's probably no intention behind it. It's just a reflection of, of Mocock's thought patterns, I suppose, and what he, what he thinks will happen and what he thinks progressiveness is. Yeah, all good stuff. Yeah. All good stuff. Is it science fiction? Well, it's not hard sci-fi, is it? But it's it's more like... It's, it's variously described as a psychedelic spy caper, which, okay, you can see an element of that. It's sometimes described as science fiction, I know people um, who follow us on Twitter have, have got various opinions about that. Is it sci-fi or isn't it sci-fi? Is it just a, an interesting contemporary take on, on what happens to society when things start to go slightly pear-shaped? I think it has that it has that element of fantastic undertones because of the Jerry Cornelius character and, and, and kind of how he's constructed. Yeah, I think, I think I mean, as I said, I, I don't really... I've never, not ever been to sci-fi, so I can't really... I don't even know how I would define it. I really know how I define sci-fi. Uh, all I know is that, you know, generally spaceships and aliens and stuff like that. <laughs> Never really been into that kind of thing. And I'm glad that it, there isn't any of that in here. But, but what I, I think the, the interesting about this this book is that if if you strip out some of the elements um, that kind of push it down the realms of kind of sci-fi, etc., you know, mm. what, what you're kind of left with is something which isn't really sci-fi but it asks those kind of uh, interesting questions where you know mm. those what if sort of questions um and, and and you're stripped down with something which many people would find as an interesting uh question as much as anything mm. else you know um that that that's i think where you end up with for me um i, I said i didn't expect to i've I, I said i'm still not made my mind up on um whether or not um, I love this thing, but I, I know that I don't dislike it, and yeah. and I said I was surprised by that. I think there's there's a lot of stuff in there which a, a mark of a good novel of any kind is once you've kind of read something that you ponder on it, 
and if you're pondering on something it means that it's kind of done its job really you know you've, mm. if you it's not something that you've kind of read something and then th- there wasn't any more substance to it so that's kind of like a long-winded way of saying i don't really know what it is sci-fi or not but um if it was read if it was written by an academic if it was if it was kind of more kind of fleshed out and i'm sure other people have done this kind of thing you know and and sanitized it in places yeah. you know you end up with something which is um one of these kind of stories about where the world potentially ends up and then ask some yeah. kind of difficult questions especially like where we kind of end up with their whole gender neutrality stuff you know that that's the really outstanding mind-blowing element isn't it? Yeah, and 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 we'll we'll see the culmination of that in phase three. I think I do wonder whether or not though it's one of these things that see someone like Morcott if he kind of asked some of the questions that the likes of J.K. Rowling are mm. are, are asking about you know legitimate questions you know from um, and and you kind of mentioned this that you know you, if once you start dipping your toe into this kind of space you yeah. you risk the the wrath of some people and you kind of perhaps uh, you receive pats on back from others. It's, it's a divisive kind yeah. of topic. And there's so much passion behind a- it. Absolutely. It? So much passion. Um, but the likes of Morcock who have set out on this road to be able to ask some of these kind of difficult questions because of the fact mm. that, you know, they, 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 they're able to do so in a way which is that it's much more written in a matter of fact sort of way, you know, and, and yeah. people kind of understand that there's no sort of agenda behind any of it it's just yeah. it's just a question so it, it would it would have been interesting to i don't know whether any of these other books kind of explore any of those kind of themes that we we are now facing in society yeah. around kind of gender neutrality so yeah it is it's a it's a brilliant observation of of, of where we, we were kind of heading and i, I really yeah. don't envisage that anyone would have ever would have thought that we would have ended up here no, but you know what? That's probably a good place to leave it because phase three, we get the, the, the culmination of this thread. And we've just done, just like we did for phase one, we've done an hour and a half on phase two. So sometimes I do think when we do these, is it really feasible that we do four and a half hours on a book that's about 150 pages long, but we just keep on doing it? <laughs> it's good that we finally figured this technology nonsense out and uh, and got to do it and events didn't conspire to get in our way. Hopefully it won't take 10 months before we cover phase three. So... Thanks, buddy. Really, really good to talk to you, and uh, we'll see you again for first three. Okay. Thank you very much, everyone. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll uh, dust up my page, uh, sorry, phase three, and uh, hopefully I'll, I'll end up reading it a few times before we actually get around to doing it again, because uh, um, that's essentially what happened with this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I've reread this three times now in preparation for this, but you know what? I've enjoyed every minute. All right, dude. Good to talk to you. Bye. Ta-ra. Bye. Thanks as ever to Hussein for being a great co-host and once again swallowing his dislike for sci-fi and fantasy to join me in this deep dive. I can't wait at some point to sit him down and watch the Robert Fuse movie from 1973. I'd love to have a movie element to this show, but seeing as Moorcock's movie involvement is limited to one flawed, albeit wonderful, adaptation in the form of the final programme, and an unmade screenplay, they'll be few and far between. He did co-write The Land That Time Forgot though, so that will definitely feature at some point. And because Doug McClure is the boss, and I remember watching it with Pops one afternoon back in the day, we might do Warlords of Atlantis too. 
Anyway, thanks once again to our generous patrons. Chaos Engineers, Andrew, Fred, Jay, Jim, John, Nelbert, Simon Perrins, Robbo, Malpertwee and Ben. More on Ben in a second. And to our rugged and enigmatic juggadors over at the Terminal Cafe. Clarky, Craig, Loz, Matt, Randall, Steve and Tom. And of course, to Lord Norman, Baker on those glistening rocks, with sweetmeats and treats basted in the juice of a thousand wailing supplicants. And fresh from the conjunction, we are blinded by the presence of the Laps Gamer, Count of Counters, Imbiber of Porters, and Chief Counsel to the Scarlet New of Sufus Prime. And Dread Mortmain, whose appetites defy description, but have been known to include tequila slammers and tasty baps served by bodybuilders. They probably have kittens in them or something. Very soon, I'll fill you all in on Captain Connolly's encounters with these fair and mysterious patron demons. But you may have noticed a new Chaos Engineer too. Ben has boarded the ship, and already tested Brute of Lashmar's frankly risible flatbreads. Better luck next time, Brute. Anyway, Ben and I had a quick message exchange, and he said, I came to breakfast in the ruins via the Grognard Files podcast, which pushes many of the same nostalgia buttons for me, as I was born in 1976 and spent most of my teenage years playing role-playing games and reading sci-fi and fantasy. I'm pretty fond of all the Coram books, so it's been good to listen to you starting to go through those. There is much Mocock that I really should reread, as it's probably around 20 or 30 years since I read most of his Eternal Champion works. That said, he is so prolific that I'm equally interested in using the podcast as a guide to what I haven't read yet. Most of my physical books were from second-hand shops, and were badly abused to begin with. Electronic copies don't have the same charm, but it does mean that things are much easier to find now. Roger Zelazny is an interesting contrast to Mocock, so it would be good to hear your thoughts on the Amber series. I read those in the 90s, and while I think Mocock's work is more influential and interesting overall, Zelazny's work had a much bigger impact on me as a role-player, and is also an interesting precursor to Game of Thrones, etc., I've also been listening to the Appendix N Book Club podcast, and that had a great interview with Mocock, and doubtless covers many titles which might be of interest to you. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Ben. Really appreciate your support. Yeah, Zelazny's Nan Princess and Amber is definitely lurking around the back of my mind when it comes to doing some side pods along with a few others. Wheels of Terror I've mentioned before, but also William Hope Hodgson's The House on the Borderlands. As for the Appendix N Book Club podcast interview, yeah... We've referenced that before. It's absolutely fantastic. Their champion blokes and Mocock really does come across as the icon that he really is. Also, emerging through the smoky haze over by the card tables in the Terminal Cafe, Ian has joined us too as a juggador. Welcome Ian and thanks for your support. Ian gave us a shout out on Twitter. He said, Another podcast keeping me sane and entertained. Found you via the Grognard file. I was introduced to Mocock via my uncle. He found the boxed Mayflower Hawkmoon on the tip. I was hooked after that. Love the cast. It's making me appreciate him again and more. Well, I've got to say I'm pretty jealous of Ian there, or his uncle, I should say, finding the slipcase Mayflower set of the History of Arun staff at a tip far outstrips the old copies of Razzle I'd generally found on Waste Ground in the 80s. I'd also like to thank another great supporter of the show, Anthony Piconti, Anthony found a different way of supporting the podcast, and I'm really, really grateful. Thanks for your support, Anthony. 
and everybody should follow Anthony on Twitter and check out his fantastic writings on a wide variety of different pieces of literature. Really is great stuff. Now, just as I thought I'd got everybody covered, another patron demon emerged from the misty vapours in the form of Neil, the Destiny Knight. And Neil dropped me a line on the uh, Patreon page to say, I just jumped aboard this month, loving the podcast massively. I'm a long-time fan of Mr. M, discovering him back in the early 70s when I was reading just about everything genre-flavoured I could find. Edgar Rice Burroughs, Howard, Lieber and Peak. I didn't text Tolkien, though I've come to appreciate what he did, i.e. rehash Nordic sagas and write enormously overblown Scandinavian fanfiction. I never bought into that stuff. My teenage self felt that fantasy should be either rip-roaring adventures, like Robert E. Howard, or sumptuous banquets of characters and oddity, like Mervyn Peake and Jack Vance, and naturally, Mocock covered all those bases. Fantastic to discover we share many of the same experiences, but dwelling in the UK during the 80s, and working in the NHS, I was an occupational therapist for my sins, probably answers a lot of questions. Keep up the ace work. Well, thanks Neil. Once again, we're absolutely delighted to have your support. And it's amazing how many of us old-time NHS people are out there with those similar tastes and those similar background habits. So welcome aboard, and don't forget to let us know what you'd like to hear covered on the podcast. Do not adjust your sets. This is coming to you from the future, or maybe the past, because of course you'll be listening to this show, and I'm just recording it. But I've re-recorded this outro a number of times because of new patrons that we've picked up along the way, and I've realised that I completely omitted Alex. Alex, struck Alexander, let us know which you prefer. Thanks for joining us. Alex has joined us as a brand new Jugadero. We're absolutely delighted to have your support, and this is particularly for you. And also, breaking in from the future of this immediate future, as I've been recording this, John Lays has joined us as a chaos engineer. So, John, thanks ever so much for joining us, and everybody, you can find John's amazing poetry and prose on his WordPress site, Darkness of His Dreams. Check it out. It's wonderful. So to Alex and John, an almighty... Welcome! So it's been a strong month for us, and as the night creeps forward and we stand in the cave mouth of a long, gloomy winter, we're determined to keep up our end of the bargain with you and get shows out there so we can continue these great conversations. Stay tuned after the transition for Chapter 4 of the Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at Breakfast Ruins. Email us at breakfastruins at outlook.com. The blog is at breakfastintheruins.com. And our Patreon page is patreon.com forward slash breakfast in the ruins. Okay, folks, thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you on the Moonbeam Roads. The Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly, Chapter 4, The Fox and the Coney The following afternoon we reached the settlement that I had glimpsed before entering the woods the previous evening. 
The village of Treback consisted of barely twenty dwellings, but the presence of an inn was a welcome sight. Although I had slept in the woods, it had hardly been quality sleep. I was never a particularly happy camper at the best of times, and the damaged, almost pained nature of that place had me constantly on edge. I woke regularly, as if shocked, and feeling that my heart was about to fly from my mouth. On one occasion, I must have cried out, and as I laid back, I realised that Vincent was awake by the embers of the fire, studying me. I turned my back and pulled my knees up into my coat. The next I knew I was being shaken by Morton and handed a wooden bowl of bitter-tasting water and a strip of dried herring. I had, as a result, of the most appalling indigestion all morning as we walked, and the sight and sound on three occasions of ornithopters scouting the countryside only made the fire in my gullet worse. My hopes for homely food and drink were satisfied by Gunther's hop-heavy ale and a steaming bowl of Lutte's Hazenpfeffer. The husband and wife team were landlord and landlady of the guest houses on Gunther Keller and made us most welcome. Gunther was hungry for news and we obliged. We learned that only a light sprinkling of fleeing refugees had passed through Treback in the past days. Although the village had learned quickly of the desperation of passers-by when all of the workhorses, ponies and most of the livestock had been taken by force. The culprits were apparently a group of unscrupulous Sarbrook city watchmen and other assorted stragglers. On hearing of the conflict heading their way, a number of the villagers had hastily packed up and fled. Lottie's skill at trapping rabbits benefited us in more ways than one. She insisted that when emptying her traps early that morning she'd spotted more men in the woods from which we would emerge later. She swore that one had watched her as she headed back to the village before he vanished. She described his ornate armour in detail, in particular his helm which was fashioned into the likeness of a keen-eyed fox. Vincent looked up sharply from his beer. Foxes. Scouts, said Friedrich, and they were in the same woods as we. Aye, Vincent spat, and no doubt they would take a great interest in the likes of you and me, brother. Gunther appeared to notice the clasp on Friedrich's cloak for the first time and yelped. You must leave! You cannot be found! He floundered. Vincent stood with a curse. You mean found here, you sweaty pile of grease. He is right, Morton was also standing now. These people will be crucified for harbouring enemies of Grand Breton. The village will be burned and the boy children impaled. We cannot stay here. There was a dramatic pause. I, so far the only person in the inn still seated, rose and interceded. Gunther, Gunther, we wish no harm to come to you or your village. You have been, for all of forty minutes or so at least, a gracious host. Now we have one further request. Gunther nodded eagerly. We require bread, cheese, and any further dried meat you may have available. We also require uh, two, make that two further requests, food and a map. Do you have any maps of this country? He shook his head and cast his eyes downward. Lottie nudged him in the ribs and hissed. He started and blurted, Gravenberg! Gravenberg! echoed Lottie. Gravenberg? said I. Count Burden is no friend of the Dark Empire, they say, Lottie continued. And the Countess is a local girl. They must help you. You are fellow nobles. Morton and I were satisfied she did not mean us specifically, but Friedrich frowned and glanced at his brother. I have never heard of any Count Burden in these or any other parts. Nor I, agreed Vincent, although Gravenberg does sound familiar somehow. If this Burden is not a friend of the Empire, then he may be a friend of ours. He at least should offer us hospitality and a place to gather our wits and plan our next moves. Foxes may have sharp eyes, but they cannot see through walls. Gunther, give us directions.' 